Welcome to the Tactics Meeting Podcast, Episode 2, Drones in Emergency Response, for January 18th, 2021. I'm Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Today's guest is my good friend, Dave Sawicki of the Sawicki Group. Hi, Dave, and welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to you, and thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, when we first met long ago, when I was still driving boats for oil spill response, long before I could hardly spell ICS, you were the director of crisis management uh, for BP uh, for all of North America, wasn't it? Uh, uh, or was it, was it broader than that? It was emergency and crisis management for the West Coast operations. Okay. Uh, it was a pretty big job. And then you retired in 2013 as the plant protection superintendent up at BP Cherry Point, a facility that I've done a lot of training exercises and even some responses at. And at that point, you went off and hung out your own shingle, the, the Sawicki group. Uh, it's a small group, uh, you and your uh, cat, right? I'll take my cat. You bet. Just me. Just you? Okay. <laughs> well, I have my dog. I have him. He, he's my deputy incident commander. So uh, he, he keeps me in line. And if I could only teach him to like carry my laptop, that that would be awesome. So, you need a bigger dog. I, yeah. Get, well, he had those little tiny legs. They can't have too big a pannier on them. And yeah. also joining us today is uh, Larry Ryan from NJ Resources. He is our GIS expert and all-around computer nerd. Hi, Larry. Welcome. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks. Oh, we're glad to be able to have you come here today's show. We're going to be talking about drones. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be nerding out on them a, a little bit. And Dave's our our expert. Dave, when you uh, retired from BP and started the Sawicki Group. You were doing emergency response drills and training, but you weren't doing drones at that point, were you? No, there was always a absolute critical element in response to make sure you have the best situational awareness and which is where Larry's expertise comes in because if we don't have a good understanding of the situation we're now, then you really can't figure out how bad it might get and therefore what the incident potential may be. So you really need best way you can to get situational awareness from the site, what's really going on there. Well, that's so true. I mean, you got to have information in order to make, make decisions and be able to get that information from the field to the situation map to the common operating picture is really critical. But when did you get interested in drones? What was your first drone? I bought a DJI drone. I have two DJI drones. One is called a Phantom 4, which is the entry level, I would call it entry level business drone. And it, it, is, it is just uh, visible light, RGB, red, green, blue. It's just like a camera in the air. Uh, I also have a DJI Mavic 2 Enterprise, which is a dual drone of thermal infrared from a FLIR system and just regular visible camera. And they can be flown. It's one camera or two cameras on the same gimbal and you can view 
one or the other or both simultaneously. Oh, that's cool. So you can you can literally go back and forth. And is it a is it a true FLIR camera? Um, what I mean by that is there 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 are some cameras out there that attempt to take visible light and make some differentiations that aren't truly trying to to measure heat differentials. If you know what I mean. So is this a true FLIR camera they've mounted on this drone? Yes, it is, but I think you have to make a distinction between what I'll call the entry and mid-level drones for commercial purposes, and then the very high-end drones. Uh, the highest end is probably for Hollywood movies and that kind of thing, but the resolution of the FLIR camera that I have is not as pixelated, doesn't have the high pixel numbers that the more high-end drones. Those high-end drones are fifty to sixty thousand dollars a piece, and that that is just out of my out of my financial business plan. So it gives uh, the drone that I use, the, the Mavic Two Enterprise Dual, uh, really allows us to get what I'll call basic heat information. So you, I use it for a search and rescue. I can use it for looking at uh, homes. You can see windows that are leaking or roofs that are leaking heat very easily. Uh, you can use it. I've not put it in the air yet for uh, oil on water because we're not like Norway where you can put oil on water for testing purposes or you know, the Baltic states. But the other thing you can do really nicely with it because you can fly low and slow uh, is along shorelines or with a um, geographic response plan location to go back out quickly and see if the boom and all that is still in place and achieving the protection that you're trying to get. And that can be done real time and um, you can live stream that real time. So between, I only have to fly one drone with the dual cameras, but with the backup drone, I can always go fly another one. Each of these drone flights, each battery lasts only about 25 minutes. So when you go up, although it flies at 35 miles an hour, you can get out to a place pretty quickly. Uh, your on scene time is probably gonna be 20 minutes before the drone automatically says, I am coming home to where you took off, to where I took off. You have no choice, it will come home on its own. It knows how much flight time it has left maybe programs in a margin of error and make sure that it breaks away from whatever you have it doing in time to safely land at its launch point. Yes. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. How do you go about live streaming? I mean, what's the technology involved in, in that? I, I worked with uh, uh, MSRC on an exercise where they streamed it using Microsoft Teams, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but I'm not sure what the connection was between what they were getting from the drone and how they actually got it into Teams. So what are you using to live stream the video? Within the DJI software, you select something called RTM, which is real-time messaging. Uh, you can select different formats. And what I've used successfully has been to get a URL from the county's emergency response communications van. They give me a URL. I enter that in when I go RTM, so I'm on a live stream, and then that links up to their van, and then they transmit it with their satellite van to 
wherever they want to. Um, we have used Zoom and, and that works really well. What it does is it means I've got to have my, the controller that I use and I use on this camera with the, uh, or the drone with the dual cameras, I use a, I, a um, Android and there's iPad like, but it's not a iPad in that sense. It's not, but it is an Android. But what I have to have is enough connectivity where I can reach out and actually get a Zoom meeting going. So the connectivity part of live streaming is, is always going to be the biggest issue. Do you have Wi-Fi or cellular coverage in the area? And you're doing that off your phone. Have you uh, purchased another hotspot or have some other kind of portable uh, connectivity to be able to live stream that as part of your kit? I have not. And right now the live streaming, as I said, I, I use my tablet for the controller. So that helps me or that allows me to see what the drone is seeing and I can control the drone through that. Simultaneously, I do a Zoom meeting on that. So that controller slash tablet is very, very busy, but it still needs connectivity, either cellular data or Wi-Fi data to be able to do the live streaming. The tablet itself communicates with the drone at a 2.6 gigahertz frequency. And I can reach out about five miles with that technically. So the drone can be up to five miles away from me and it, it will still send its video to me and I can still tell it to go up, down, left or right or around in a circle, technically. Are you allowed under FAA rules to fly with it that far away from you as the controller? Not under my FAA license. I'm limited to line of sight, but what I have, and there are some vertical limitations we can talk about in a minute, just altitude limitations, but line of sight. But my and line of sight means you cannot use binoculars. You can't have a visual observer. You've got a team there with you flying it and somebody else with binoculars saying, I know where it is. Uh, so you have to, as the pilot in charge or the responsible pilot in charge, the IPIC, uh, you have to be able to keep that within line of sight. And with my eyes, I can see about 15, 1800 feet. So, and that would call that a radius. So I can go out from where I am, 15, 1800 feet one direction, 15, 1800 feet in the other direction. That said, on the screen, it always, it has a little map that shows me where it is relative to my, where I am. And which direction it's pointing. So I can turn it around and bring it home easily, unless it's just on its own battery orders and it's coming home on its own, but I can follow it home on the map on the uh, screen. That's cool. Have you seen those goggles that the drone racers use where they are looking out the camera like they're a first person pilot flying those things? Have you seen those? I have, and they're called FP Frank Papa Victor first person video. But really, if I'm looking at the screen on the tablet, that's what I'm looking at anyway. So I don't need another piece of equipment. 
on my head. <laughs> I, just, I just thought they look really, really cool and give you that I'm sitting in the cockpit kind of view looking out of the drone. Yeah, that's that's nice. I've got a shield for the the uh, tablet that helps protect it from the light, just glare. But even that is, is really unnecessary. You just get used to using it out in the field. So the range limitation is is line of sight, and we'll 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 call that uh, um, OME old man eyeball. Um, so that that would that would apply to both of us. <laughs> um, what about the altitude you mentioned? There's a restriction on how how high we can go vertically. My federal license, and you can buy a drone and not have a federal license. You can just be a, a recreational user in which you don't need a license. My federal license prohibits me from flying more than 400 feet above the ground. But the ground can be defined as if you're doing work on a 20-story building, you can fly 400 feet above the top of that 20-story building. So 400 feet AGL, above ground level, um, is the nomenclature. But that kind of varies on if you're over open fields or water versus downtown over a building. What are the restrictions um, for being near airports? How close to, a, to an airport can you be and still fly? For a controlled airport, which is one that has someone in the tower, five miles, five nautical miles. You can't be within that. And the DJI drones actually for whatever reason, they are configured where if you're within one of those restricted zones, it will not let you take off. You cannot really? leave the ground because it has a, a geo-referenced zone and uh, you can get into the software and provide them information that you have a contract to fly in this area, you're working on search and rescue, emergency response, and you can break that, you can turn off that geo-reference zone, GRZ, uh, you can have it turned off and uh, and then fly from there. But you still need FAA approval. One is the drone approval. The software knows where you are, but you still need FAA approval to be able to fly within that controlled airspace. So there's two approvals, one, one technical hardware and one FAA. What did it take to get the FAA pilot's license? Did you have to take a class? Is there a test? Yes and yes, and I have to retake the test every two years. It's a proctored test, so I go down to a location where they say little airport, like in Arlington, Washington, and you go into the side room and they, make, they pat you down and make sure you don't have any notes or anything with you. And it's a computer test and you've got two hours to go through about 200 questions and you need to get an 80% on it to pass. I got my first one after taking an online course and there's many online courses. I just looked at the, some of the vendors and found out the vendor looking at the reviews who provided the most um, support when you had questions. So uh, that company I use is just, I've only bought one license from one course, if you will. And they've always been there for me. Anytime I needed something, they would answer within either 15 minutes or an hour or two. So it's if you're gonna do that really, reach out and try to find out uh, which one actually has some people you can talk to and respond to in a chat room or something like that. They're very okay. helpful. Was it hard Was it or, and expensive? 
I think it was 150, 200 bucks to, to buy the course. It took me about, uh, I would say 25, 30 hours to go through it. It's all in specific elements with test questions along the way that are just for your use to know how, how you're doing. Um, and you can always go back and redo an element, a chapter or sub chapter you looked at yesterday to refresh your memory. And it, it, I would guess it's 25 to 30 hours of my time. Oh. Flying the drone is easy. Left, right, up and down and around in a circle. Um, the regulations, especially about different flight uh, aircraft restriction zones, how to read the, uh, the aircraft charts, like Seattle sector charts, how to understand all that. Because if you've ever looked at a map that the pilots use, it's just a cacophony of data and lines and shades of lines and different diagrams. Once you get into it, you go, oh, okay, I know what I'm looking for, and then you can find it. So that's the hardest part of it. The next hardest part is just understanding the regulations around um, elevations, like I can't fly within 2,000 feet of a cloud base, and I can't fly within two miles of clouds that are uh, all the way to the ground. So it won't let you fly into clouds. Okay. But you said when it starts to run out of battery, it it uh, it runs for home. What if you launched it from the deck of a boat and home is moving? Will it still come home? No, not in that regard. However, the brilliance of being on a boat, I, and I have that little map that shows me where it is compared to where I am, I can always turn the camera around and the camera goes up and down too so I can be looking straight down or out to the horizon. I'll just turn the whole drone around, find the boat I'm on and then just drive it back to me from there. And they're, they're hand catchable. You don't need a big net like we used to do uh, from the drones off the, some of the old uh, winged aircraft that were drones at the time. They're hand catchable and they're really easy to uh, to bring down that way. Okay. Yeah, Larry, it looks like you've got something to add. Just jump right in. Don't be shy. You're raising, yeah. raising your nope. hand. What is this? Third grade? <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I, I love visiting with Dave. Uh, I've worked with him as well for a number of years, and he's just got so much knowledge. Um, but one thing we all know because we've all been there is that if we, if we wanna talk about drones in relationship to oil spills, is that a lot of times oil spills happen when there's bad weather, when it's inclement weather. And so, so what, what, what happens to the drone if, if we're a little bit windy or we've got a lot of rain or what's going on with, with, with the drone? Sure, it, it's gonna depend on the dollars you spent on your drone. My drones in the three to five thousand dollar piece are not weather, are not all weather. So I, I'm not going to fly in the rain. Mm -hmm. However, um, I've got as far as nighttime, I would have to get an FAA waiver to fly at night. Okay. But uh, I've got uh, beacons on it, like aircraft beacons that are required that I can just put on the top. I've got a spotlight system, and a very powerful. LED spotlight system on it, or I can put on a speaker system for like, for search and rescue, find somebody and talk to them and then have them do hand gestures back to me and I can 
you know, tell me if you've, uh, if you're okay, uh, wave your hands. If you're not okay and you can't wave your hands, that's, I don't ask that question. I'm just saying, if you're okay, wave your hand. Um, but as far as now the, the higher dollar drones, the $50,000, $60,000 drones, they are all weather, no question about it. Um, the other deal with any emergency response situation is these are not intrinsically safe. There's four little engines, four, six, or eight little engines, all electric on these things. So knowing which way the wind is blowing and staying upwind with some zoom capabilities with the camera is really important. The other part of that is really, you answered how much wind. I've had it up in 35, 40 mile an hour winds and it gives me a warning. It just says high oh wind, warning, fly safe. And I do, and the, the software in the incorporated in the drone with the GIS capabilities, it's usually working off of seven or eight GIS satellites, but it also has downward pointing infrared. It also has forward, backward, and lateral vision sensors. So it, it retains its position remarkably well, even though it's got you know, 25, 30 mile an hour winds. It's, it's uncanny how that, the image that comes back, I've not seen it impacted at all in 25 or 35 mile an hour winds. Gosh, and and are are the controls on on um, on your drone, your remote control, um, are, are those are those universal? You know what the joysticks do, how you control the drone. Is that is that kind of a, a universal? Um, uh, I guess the the different movements that you can that you that you use to control your drone. From all the drones I've fly, flown, and from what I've seen other people use, the toggles, little things yeah. when it comes Thanks. for That's all the same. Okay. The nuances really come into knowing which software elements on the screen you want to go activate or deactivate, and so you don't want to. I mean that's. The difference between flying it and then making it as a tool, a hammer and a nail, easy. Now, if you want to drive a certain screw at a certain bit rate or whatever, that's a totally different thing. And then you have to be familiar with what the software capabilities are. And most of my experience has shown the software in these drones um, is remarkable and very reliable. Uh, I've crashed my drones into trees and it and I just go and get it and I put clean it off, clean the mud off of it and uh, put a new battery in and it goes right back because the uh, propellers are all very lightweight and I've got about two dozen propellers. So if I break one, I just put a new one on and off she goes. How many batteries do you carry with you? You get in 25 minutes or, or so of, of flight time. I'm assuming that once she comes home, you can swap the batteries and send her right back out again. How many do you have? I've got five batteries for each drone, and I've got a small generator system with uh, that generates enough clean sine wave so it can charge the batteries. A regular generator, you know, plug it in a generator to a big champion construction generator, the battery charger won't accept that charge. It needs a clean sine wave. So um, my process is I come back, land it, Put a new battery in and and start charging the old one. So there's a bank of at least five, 
for each drone. One is charging at all times, then two, then three, and then when, by that time, they take about 35 to 45 minutes to, to charge up again. And if I need more than that, I just go fly a different drone with all new five batteries. So that's enough batteries sitting on the charger that with a, a margin for error that you, when she comes home, there's always a fully charged battery ready to go. Yes. Now I've not, so my guideline that I use, I'm ready for about two and a half to three hours of flight time before I would be out of batteries because although they charge up in 30 to 35 minutes i've never had a project long enough to really test that and see if that's right but two and a half three hours would i say eight hours well i don't know i'd, I'd have to go have an eight hour project to see that yeah you just need to sit in your lawn chair send the thing up to hover when it comes home let it run out of battery when it lands next to you put your beverage down whatever you're preference was at the time, swap in a new battery and send it back up again. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that because I did some research on what are the issues with drones as far as the public is concerned. That was for a white paper I co-edited for the Northwest Area Contingency Plan and the Northwest Area Committee rather. And in 2019, in the 40 states I looked at, by far the public's biggest concern is privacy. The public still thinks that they own the airwaves. So they're gonna shoot that drone down. Well, if they do, they just committed a federal offense, but I'm not gonna argue with him if he's got a gun especially. But for me to fly just over in the same location and just keep that drone going for a couple hours, I am sure the neighbors would come out and say something. Now, every time I go on a project, I talk to all the neighbors that I can find and say, here's what I'm doing. I don't have a camera that I can look in your windows, blah, blah, blah. Here's my business card and that hasn't been an issue. But it's just privacy. People are very concerned about their own personal privacy. And I understand that. No, that, that, makes, that makes total sense. But, what so kind of projects have you done with the drone? I mean, you were talking Pardon? about search and rescue and what kind of projects have you done? What has the Sawicki Group been engaged in with these drones? Real estate, not only for individual homes, realtors, but for 40, 50 acre parcels, we're all flying grid system over it. Most of the realtors just want pictures. Some of them want a video, but the video they really want, if it's over a minute or two, they don't need it because they don't think the public's gonna focus on anything for more than a minute or two. But uh, so I've flown 50 acre, 60 acre uh, videos of open property farmlands. I've also flown, flown a lot of flights for uh, like local park and recreations where districts where they're gonna fly, maybe they're gonna develop a new pathway, walk pathway through some forest to go from this forest to the next forest from one shoreline to the next one. And there's eight or 10 linear miles of pathway that they're eventually going to go clear. And I'll fly those for them to get, give them a sense of just uh, what's in the way out there so they don't have to trudge through the marshes and, and that kind of stuff uh, in the lowlands near the coastlines. Um, I've flown some tower inspections 
for county agencies, you know, those uh, satellite looking towers that they have up that do the early warning, the tsunami warning, things like that. All right. Just so people can see what's there. Uh, and I've flown shoreline inspections after storms uh, along high roads and, and waterways after, or shoreline after a storm, just see how much damage is done on a storm. And I've also flown for a county agency inland after a storm along drainages that are now flooded. And now you've got houses and farmland and that kind of thing, totally flooded. And, so uh, so if, if we're using the drone, if we're flying it to look for oil and, you know, Larry Ryan, uh, your concern is being able to plot data onto a GIS map that makes sense to people. So what kind of uh, geo-referencing capability does the, the drone provide? Is it going to give us data that, that we can plot? Will it, will it download a shapefile or a, a KMZ or just a, a stream of pictures that have uh, GIS uh, 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 lat-long data embedded in the image? What, what does it provide? Each picture has latitude, longitude, altitude. So each individual picture I take has it. Um, every flight I have, every flight I make, there's a flight path map that is always, always come back. And so you can download that, grab that, and then any place along the flight path, once you bring it up, you move your cursor and it'll automatically tell you where that picture is and the lat long of that. Let's say you took a picture at point A and point C, but didn't take a picture at point B, you can at least know with the map that the drone flew between A and C and get a sense of where it was. But to get data, an image, you're gonna to have to take a picture or a video. And the video is the same way. It gives you latitude and longitude. There's a ton of data in that because it's a video and it's moving. But, uh, and that really brings up the, the mechanics of flying the drone are easy. It's the data management part. So the process of bringing a picture back, each drone has an SD card in it, and it also captures, and that's where it captures pictures and video. The recorder that I'm using, or the tablet, also records all those images and the videos. So I come back, load the SD card, into my laptop and uh, create either a, an image JPEG for each one and I can edit the, I can change the name of it, the alphanumeric designation for it and give it a geographical name or a specific name. Um, and then as far as videos, I come, I come back, get the SD card out, put it into my software. And from that point, I can make a MP4 file and share that you know, by a Google Drive type thing, or I could take the MP4 file and also make it uh, into a, uh, oh, something like you put on YouTube. Okay, well, Larry Ryan, what kind of data are you looking for to have come in from the field when we've got drones that are, that are flying? Or really air, any aerial observer trying to bring back data? Yeah. The, uh, the flight path is obviously really important, um, where we took off from, obviously, and where, where we went and, and then on the route back. 
but then what what did they do what did the uh, platform do when it observed the oil was it a, a ladder formation did they fly the perimeter so all of that comes back uh, as Dave mentioned that flight that flight path can come back as as uh, as data that you can bring into the GIS it comes in as a line feature and then you have those different points um, along that flight path that would give you a JPEG um, and it gives you in the XF, EX, XF data, you get the lat long. But um, as far as overflight information as well, you know, there's, you, you wanna look at the characteristics of the oil, um, the color of the oil, um, what is the what 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 are the what's the pattern like? Is it uh, is it a big oil patty? Is it sheen? Is it kind of broken up into into little bits, or is it one giant patch of oil? Is is it something that we can go out and get with uh, with a boat and a skimmer, or collect in in boom and corral it? So that's the kind of information that you're trying to gather from from your platform that's going out to look at look at an oil spill. And that's very valuable. It comes back in as it can, you know, be on a piece of notebook paper, whatever, Latin long. It give me the leading edge and the trailing edge of of, uh, of a patch of oil, and we'll put it on the map. This drone technology, though, is is amazing because uh, in just the ArcGIS platform, you can work with the data that that uh, Dave just mentioned. However, there's a whole plugin feature that ArcGIS has available for a small investment that will take your drone data to another level. And I'm not actually prepared to, to really uh, elaborate upon that because I'm just now learning it. And it's fascinating now. And that's why I was so excited to, to chat with Dave about this technology. Well, I'm gonna throw you under the bus and ask you to just, you know, I know you're not an expert in it, but give us uh, some little idea of what the next level means. I'm going to take this drone down to the next level. Just a, a thumbnail sketch of what you what you think is possible there. Well, I think the live streaming uh, aspect of that and also now who's who's getting thrown under the bus? I just kind of jumped out there for you, Dave. No, it's Maybe your butt. It you. You too. <laughs> totally Larry. Larry, don't you Where feel those you? bus tires rolling over you? Oh, yeah. I yeah. swear to God, I heard that flat sound as it hit you. No, but I think the live streaming is, is going to be a huge part of this. And, and the processing part of the data, you know, you get this big raw data and it's, it's massive. Am I right, Dave? I mean, the, the data that can come in from a flight, the, the, just the size of the data to bring it in to the GIS takes a lot of processing. So these, um, ArcGIS drone to map will help with that processing and also just the visualization of it and making it much more user-friendly, uh, for instance, in a common operating picture. But specifically, consider me run over by the bus. Okay, so that's a plug-in that you as the GIS operator, the developer of the COP would, would work with. That's not something that uh, Dave Sawicki, operator of the drone, would deal with. Yeah, correct. Unless Dave has, you know, his hands on GIS as well and wants to bring in a um, a different kind of product rather than the raw data. Well, it does make me wonder about a practical 
thing. So we've got the drone that's flying and, and the drone has come home and it's got an SD chip in it and it's got data on it. I want that data to go back to the situation unit so that I, I can process it. So it, it seems to me like we have a couple of options. We land the drone, we pull the SD card, we stick it in an envelope that says flight one, you know, day one time or whatever. And we take out another SD card and we put it in the drone at the same time that we're swapping the battery. And when the drone flies again, I've now I have that data in my hand and I can either physically transport it back to the command coast for processing, or I stick it in the computer and I, I upload the file to Dropbox or Box or Google Drive or, or, or whatever, but I need that data, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and so if I wanna process the data as quickly as possible, and, and uh, uh, Dave, you're taking right back off again, you're flying. I mean, you're not, if I want that data right now, but I want you back in the air, it almost seems to me like you need uh, an assistant there to do the very kind of data management that you're talking about. What, what, what are your their thoughts along those lines? Or am I completely off base? No, I think that's a, a key part. And I don't think that, I certainly have not taken anything to that level at this point. What I have done for clients, like let's just use the example of the floods up here in Whatcom County. I come back, if not needed to fly, I can pull up the images, the pictures, and the video, make a video in a, oh, 20 minutes, and I can put, I can import, or I can place images within that video stream and title those images or put something on it, text in the images or text on the video that says view to the Northwest at 1330 hours or view towards the XYZ bridge at 30 hours. That just takes some really good understanding of what Larry was talking about. Are we looking at patties? Are we looking at Sheen? Are we looking at you know, what, what really are you looking at? And that's where the, wherever the pilot is, if they understand what oil does on water and what we try to do with it, given our tactics, that really can help get the right data back. Because if all you're going to do is go fly and the guy doesn't know what a wide swath versus a narrow swath or an ocean buster or that kind of thing, and you don't know what thick oil looks like or you couldn't help to tell a captain or two or three boat masters, you know, move a quarter mile to the left and go on this bearing, then you've got to have a whole nother uh, person sitting down, getting the data on the ground and going, oh, now what do I do? But I think the, you hit it on the head, Dan. It's a compilation of, I would say, make sure that your flights are focused for intent. What are you trying to get a picture of? Bring that back down, sit down with somebody, look at those pictures and say picture one, two, three, and four, or this, 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 and this, you can just jot that down, give them to somebody. And I think that helps the tactics of the response. So uh, being able to sit on the bow of an MSRC responder class vessel and being the pilot and being able to have someone right next to you, another oil spill tech, tactical person and saying, look at this picture, you go tell those boats they need to go 
150 meters to the west or whatever. That is real-time situational assessment and um, different than what we've been talking about is a common operating picture. The common operating picture is going to take some processing to get into place. But the real-time assessment of getting up in the air, getting those uh, an ocean buster configuration of boom and vessels into place, that can be done real-time. And I think that's the real value of it. And in the contract that I have with MSRC, we're going to do some training this spring when we can, where we're actually going to live stream to their helm and the, where they have the capabilities at the helm to transmit from there to whomever they want. So one way of doing, so what you're saying is that, you know, one tactical application is, is that it's just kind of giving us an eye in the sky to um, maneuver on water task force assets into thick oil. Right. At that point, we're not so concerned about sending data back to the common operating picture. We're interested in having, uh, you know, uh, an observer sitting in the crow's nest, if you will. But that crow's nest is 400 feet in the air and we can move it around. Kind of guiding everyone, right? Well, and I think that, yes, that's all true. And this is the distinction I would bring up between a tethered balloon with a camera in it and a drone. Let's say the sun angle is such that from the tethered camera, I can't get anything but glare from the sun off the water. I can fly a drone, you know, 180 degrees around it, go to a higher or lower altitude or right on the deck and get that image you want back up. And so it's much more agile, I'll put it that way. But the benefit of the tethered system is it's up 24 seven. Well, you can also, there's, there's oh. tethered drones as well, right? So, so on the one hand, like MSRC has those, uh, um, I think they, they call them an aerostat, right? There's a, they're a, they're a little blimp really that has a camera hanging under it and it's got an umbilical that runs from the, from the balloon to the deck of the vessel. And that provides, uh, uh, a dat not only a connection point, but has a data cable running, so you get the the images that are coming down from the camera. But with a drone, the other part of the umbilical is power, right? We it provides. There's no battery. It provides power to the unmanned vehicle and allows it to fly above its anchor point, even if the anchor point is moving, and also can then stay in the air indefinitely. And I saw a really interesting application of this uh, from a, a, a picture that the army had. They had, uh, it was a Humvee and it had a big cradle on it. And on that cradle was a big uh, drone. And this drone just flew straight up in the air with a giant umbilical on it. Ah. And so it would go up to a hundred feet, 200 feet. And ah. it was uh, radio antennas, uh, lights, cameras, and so it it was like putting up a putting up a tower, but you could just you know drive into a location and send this thing up a uh, hundred, two hundred, three hundred feet, and it would just stay there stationary, flying with your 
uh, antennas getting the height of eye you need for line of sight communication for surveillance cameras. And uh, when you're done with it, it just reeled back in again. I thought that was super cool. And MSRT tells me that they're going to be flying something kind of similar. It'll be tethered to the vessel with power, but um, I'm not sure if you could fly it independently with batteries or if it's designed to be a, a, a tethered platform or not. I, that's, right. We'll have to get them on the show and let them explain it. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's with any tool, you have to decide what's the objective. You have a hammer, you have a ball peen hammer, you have a sledgehammer. Three, you're all hammers, but three different objectives, three different outcomes. So you just have to be selective in what you're trying to achieve. Uh, you mentioned earlier, what is the time to get a uh, drone to the field? Uh, drive time from my house to wherever, or from your drone provider's office to wherever. Uh, my drones take about eight minutes once I'm on site to unpack, load up, and put in the air. So it's, that's for, especially for uh, emergency response, you know, firefighting, that kind of thing, that's very practical. And it comes in little, little tiny cases, so they aren't big. Now the $50,000, $60,000 drones, instead of a small case, it's just a, a suitcase size. Mine are about um, size of a quarter of a suitcase, put it that way. But uh, then the, the really expensive drones beyond that come with multiple kits, multiple cases because of all the batteries and stuff that they have and camera systems. So it uh, just depends on how much money you have and what the objective is. Right. Well, I was talking to another emergency response drone pilot and we were comparing the cost of flying these drones, the cost of even purchasing the drones to the cost of uh, flying a helicopter for the most part. Uh, at least in the oil industry, you know, we're required to have uh, aircraft that are dual engine, a pilot and a co-pilot. And the hourly rate on flying these aircraft is more than the drones cost, yeah. uh, which, which makes us think that, you know, if, if you're flying in the rain, if you're flying in heavy wind and you crash and lose a drone, well, maybe think of them as disposable when you compare them to uh, some of the potential other costs involved. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have my own drone insurance. Uh, it's on a monthly basis and it covers all my drones or both of my drones rather. And if I crash it and I can't recover it, my insurance will cover. I won't get it back that day, but that, that's kind of why I have two drones. Uh, as far as the speed with which I can get it up and get it going and recover it. Um, at 35 miles an hour, once I launch it, I can be out you know, 15, 1800 feet away in a minute or two, hover right over where I need to be. And then let's say I get what I need there, but now someone says, hey, go look at this shoreline or that GRP, just the other side of the bay, or there's a vessel over there, go do a, tell us what that vessel's doing. You just retask it and you just fly over there. So there's flexibility versus long-term in the air. And I think like a, a county or Coast Guard helicopter gives you the long-term in the air at a higher cost, but different value, put it that way, than the two to, two to $10,000 drone system. I'll put it that way. Well, I know that I have your phone number on the, on the call out list for response for the early phase, the 
the assessment phase. I mean, that uh, fly up and down the, the Blair Waterway or the Duwamish or, or you know, fly out from the, from the dock to see, you know, whether oil got outside of the containment boom to be able to have that height divide to do an assessment as to you know, how big an incident this is, is, is really important. So I, I feel like that early phase is really where uh, drones may, may shine. And I can get, depending on how close the columns are under a wharf, I don't need GIS to fly. I just go slow in one of the software packages called tripod mode. And I go really slowly, but I can weave in and out amongst uh, under wharf and then just take pictures, take video, turn around and fly back out. It's, it's no different than going into a smoky house, third floor up into a window looking for somebody. You don't have GIS, but you can go into a different software capability built into the drone and switch back and forth and fly without the GIS um, support. Yes, you have to be very careful just in your flying, you've got to be comfortable flying it. Um, but that's just hands-on time, you know. Hey, Dave, um, can we just back up a little bit to that test as far as the getting your, your license for commercial applications? Um, so I, I saw that there's a practical or that there's a multiple choice section, but is there a practical part of it? Does someone assess your flight capability or your, your um, or your drone itself? Well, that's a great distinction. Um, and I think the latter is more important. No one's ever come out and assessed my ability, hands-on with them. Now I'm working with a company, just, um, just started working with a company in Philadelphia who does this hands-on training and that kind of stuff. But, um, as far as once you get your license, then you're on your own to figure out how to make the software work. Because the license really has nothing to do with making the software work. It's the license goes, do you know where you can fly, when you can fly? Can you fly over people? Can you fly over cars, houses, whatever? What's the weather? What, what are the airports like? But that assessment tool, um, I think is critical and was in part of a draft operations manual that I wrote for a county that says, no, these pilots have to fly at least once a month, and you're going to have a chief pilot who will go out and do training and exercises, so you can really get people comfortable with their job. Yeah, you're assessing their ability, but you're really assessing their ability while you're allowing them to get more comfortable, so it's a multitask. How There's many no, organ? Uh, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. There's no legal requirement for that, though, Larry. As far you brought up something that's important, uh, inspection of the drones. Uh, is there a safety management system, an SMS type protocol for it? Uh, there's nothing that comes from DJI, but there's lots of software packages that vendor has for companies that have several drones and they, they track their battery use and you can put in how many times you've flown that <coughs> drone with this battery or how many times you're checking it. I do that in advance and at the end of every flight just with a format I have of a, a file 
that makes me go through and check the box. Yes, 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 yes. Did you check this? Did you check that? Yeah. And then I do it at the end before I put all the drone equipment away. So I have a safety management system that I developed just for me. Um, but there's one is called Kitty Hawk. One is called AirMap. These are more expensive and they're really for fleet management of drones. Interesting. So what uh, kind of other projects are you working on now? Dave, you got anything in the pipeline? I'm supposed to go to the County Agricultural Commission Zoom meeting next week because I want to know about all the potential agricultural uses, uh, needs. I'm not a farmer, but there are some very large um, companies in my county where I live that do all the irrigation control systems and the big sprayers. Well, do they know where those, where is that spray going? Is it really covering the area they need? So I'm gonna to try to get into the agricultural side. Um, and that'll be my, my next soiree, if you will. Okay, I, I, now you mentioned that. I, I, I heard another podcast, uh, it was probably a couple of years ago now that uh, was talking about uh, drones for agriculture. And it was saying that, you know, one of the big expenses is irrigation water and they would fly drones looking for leaks. And this particular drone system, which I thought was pretty cool, it had a fixed base station and it would fly a fixed pattern and the drone would, would fly, land, come back and land in its base station. And when it landed in the base station, it connected to a data port and uploaded its data and images. And at the same time, the base station automatically swapped the batteries. And ah. when it was done, it would just fly again. So it could fly 24 seven in this way uh, and, and be able to keep an eye on, on what was, was going on. So, so I thought that was, uh, that was kind of cool. I saw, I think it was on 60 minutes, a very large drone, like, the, like a small car. And what they're using them for now is transplanting trees after a fire in very remote, rugged areas. And it'll load uh, 100 or two saplings. And it goes down and it plants each sapling on a specified grid and then goes back. And you know, there's all sorts of tools you can make it work. You just, how big a, how big a platform and how much power and how much money do you have? But this thing was awesome. There's another one I saw of firefighting in the Far East where they had drones on various sides of building and the drone was big enough to carry a fire hose up three or four stories and blow water right into a window. Well, just the weight of the hose and the water is immense, three or four stories in the air. So that's a, a whole nother use. To, you just need bigger toys. What size hose? Like a regular inch and a half fire hose? I couldn't tell, but it was a the stream that was coming out, something where there was a, a a true S curve in the hose below the drone. So it was push, pushing enough pressure where it forced the drone backwards. So whether that was inch and a half or there's probably no more than an inch and a half just on sheer weight. But uh, that's some serious thing for a, if, if you've ever done any fire training, you know, there's a guy. Larry's, Larry's laughing. Cause we've both been, we've both been to Marine fire, firing school. And, you know, uh, you know, when you're pushing 
100, 150 PSI through an inch and a half fire hose. It takes two guys standing on that thing to hold them in place. You had to yeah. lifting that one, thing up under a drone? Yeah, and when one, one person has to say, prepare to gooseneck. That was always <laughs> my favorite part. Yeah. Prepare to gooseneck. Gooseneck. When I did that at Texas A&M, I was the biggest guy in the team, and so they called me the mule. And my whole job was to control the non-business end of that fire hose, but these are the bigger fire hose, you know, 250 GPM type stuff. But the, yeah. the future, the future is awesome, just as long as people, I think, follow the rules, take responsibility for what they do, and then share lessons learned. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Tactics Meeting. Thank you to Dave Sawicki of the Sawicki Group. You can find more information about Dave's activities at sawickygroup.com. That's sawickygrp.com. And thank you to Larry Ryan from NJ Resources. You can find more information about what Larry's up to at njr.net.